Will Conan the Sumerian help Yasmina avenge her kingly brother's death? Robert E. Howard, today on the Classic Tales Podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. The Classic Tales Podcast is listener-supported. If you enjoy listening to the Classic Tales, please consider becoming a supporting member. It helps support the podcast, and it's a great way to build out your library of classics. By making a monthly donation of just $5, you'll receive a corresponding thank you code for $8 off any digital audiobook download. You win! And we get to keep going strong. Go to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com and become a member today. If you have the Classic Tales app, check out your special features for more meditations of Marcus Aurelius. If you'd like to share a snippet of today's show with your friends, join us in beta testing the Air app. Links can be found in the show notes. We also have a merchandise store where you can get shirts and tote bags with your favorite Classic Tales covers. Again, links are in the show notes. And check us out on Spotify, our new podcast partner. We're still chipping away at Hunchback. It's on its way. Be sure you don't miss it and become a monthly supporter. Once it's ready, I'll send an email out to all of our current supporters. So if you've let your membership lapse, be sure and resubscribe. And by the way, the only reason I'm being skittish about announcing a release date for Hunchback is simply because I don't know how much more of my time I can throw toward it. I'm not trying to be like an enigmatic jerk, but at this point, it's kind of what I can commit to. I can get it done in the near future, send it out to the supporters, and move on. I hope you don't mind. If you have any suggestions, feel free to send me an email at support at thebestaudiobooks.com. Today, we are dipping our toe into the world of Conan the Sumerian. Now, I decided to do this book for a couple of reasons. One, Howard's Conan series was a very important chapter in the history of fantasy. Many authors continued the series after Howard's death. Over 50 novels and dozens of short stories of Conan were written by authors other than Howard. Two, This method of storytelling, using the cycle of the hero and using larger-than-life archetypal characters, is something that we have largely moved away from. I'll explain it in Star Wars. So, in the original trilogy, you have the archetypal characters, the hero, the damsel in distress, the adventurer, the evil villain. This is a total oversimplification. This collection of characters is seen in millions of stories, and resonate with something deep within us. This is how storytelling has been done for centuries. This Conan story is a fantastic example of this method. Today, we tend to demand that our characters are more nuanced, complicated, and multifaceted. The stories that follow the same traditional pattern using archetypal characters seem to not do as well today. And so the Conan story is an interesting look at how it used to be done, And hopefully, if parts ring a bit shallow, we can realize that we've become more developed in our storytelling nowadays. And Rey is my favorite Jedi. Anyway, on to our personal moment. 
Monday, we saw National Theatre Live's 10-year anniversary of their broadcast of Hamlet with Benedict Cumberbatch. It was so incredibly fun. I was amazed that my 12-year-old Goldie could follow it all so well. But then I realized she's kind of been raised in an atmosphere of literature. I guess it's not a big deal when you've grown up seeing your brothers and parents do Shakespeare. Anyway, it was so incredibly fun. Such a great, great production. And now, The People of the Black Circle, Part 1 of 4, by Robert E. Howard. Chapter 1. Death Strikes a King The king of Vendhya was dying. Through the hot, stifling night, the temple gongs boomed and the conchs roared. The clamor was a faint echo in the gold-domed chamber where Bunda Chand struggled on the velvet-cushioned dais. Beads of sweat glistened on his dark skin. His fingers twisted the gold-worked fabric beneath him. He was young. No spear had touched him. No poison lurked in his wine. But his veins stood out like blue cords on his temples, and his eyes dilated with the nearness of death. Trembling slave girls knelt at the foot of the dais, and leaning down to him, watching him with passionate intensity, was his sister, the Devi Yasmina. With her was the Wazam, a noble grown old in the royal court. She threw up her head in a gusty gesture of wrath and despair as the thunder of the distant drums reached her ears. The priests and their clamor, she exclaimed. They are no wiser than the leeches who are helpless. Nay, he dies, and none can say why. He is dying now, and I stand here helpless, who would burn the whole city and spill the blood of thousands to save him. Not a man of Iodha, but would die in his place, if it might be, Devi, answered the Wazam. This poison. I tell you it is not poison, she cried. Since his birth, he has been guarded so closely that the cleverest poisoners of the East could not reach him. Five skulls, bleaching on the tower of the kites, can testify to attempts which were made, and which failed. As you well know, there are ten men and ten women whose sole duty is to taste his food and wine, and fifty armed warriors guard his chamber as they guard it now. No, it is not poison. It is sorcery. Black, ghastly magic. She ceased as the king spoke. His livid lips did not move, and there was no recognition in his glassy eyes. But his voice rose in an eerie call, indistinct and far away, as if called to her from beyond vast, wind-blown gulfs. Yasmina, Yasmina, my sister, where are you? I, I cannot find you. All is darkness and the roaring of great winds. Brother, cried Yasmina, catching his limp hand in a convulsive grasp. I am here. You do not know me? 
Her voice died at the utter vacancy of his face. A low, confused moan waned from his mouth. The slave girls at the foot of the dais whimpered with fear, and Yasmina beat her breast in anguish. In another part of the city, a man stood in the latticed balcony, overlooking a long street in which torches tossed luridly, smokily revealing upturned dark faces and the whites of gleaming eyes. A long-drawn wailing rose from the multitude. The man shrugged his broad shoulders and turned back into the arabesque chamber. He was a tall man, compactly built and richly clad. The king is not dead, but the dirge is sounded, he said to another man, who sat cross-legged on a mat in a corner. This man was clad in a brown camel-hair robe and sandals, and a green turban was on his hat. His expression was tranquil, his gaze impersonal. The people know he will never see another dawn, this man answered. The first speaker favored him with a long, searching stare. What I cannot understand, he said, is why I have had to wait so long for your masters to strike. If they have slain the king now, why could they not have slain him months ago? Even the arts you call sorcery are governed by cosmic laws, answered the man in the green turban. The stars direct these actions, as in other affairs. Not even my masters can alter the stars. Not until the heavens were in the proper order could they perform this necromancy. With a long, stained fingernail, he mapped the constellations on the marble-tiled floor. The slant of the moon presaged evil for the king of Vendia. The stars are in turmoil, the serpent in the house of the elephant. During such juxtaposition, the invisible guardians are removed from the spirit of Bunda Chand. A path is opened in the unseen realms, and once a point of contact was established, mighty powers were put in play along that path. Point of contact? inquired the other. Do you mean that lock of Bunda Chand's hair? Yes. All discarded portions of the human body still remain part of it, attached to it by intangible connections. The priests of Asura have a dim inkling of this truth, and so all nail trimmings, hair, and other waste products of the persons of the royal family are carefully reduced to ashes and the ashes hidden. But at the urgent entreaty of the princess of Kosala, who loved Bundrachand vainly, he gave her a lock of his long black hair as a token of remembrance. When my masters decided upon his doom, the lock, in its golden jewel-encrusted case, was stolen from under her pillow while she slept, and another substituted, so like the first, that she never knew the difference. Then, the genuine lock, travelled by camel caravan, up the long, long road to Peshkuri, thence up the Zaibar Pass, until it reached the hands of those for whom it was intended. 
only a lock of hair, murmured the nobleman, but which a soul is drawn from its body and across gulfs of echoing space, returned the man on the mat. The nobleman studied him curiously. I do not know if you are a man or a demon, Kemsa, he said at last. Few of us are what we seem. I, whom the Kshatriyas know as Kerim Shah, a prince from Iranistan, am no greater a masquerader than most men. They are all traitors in one way or another. Half of them know not whom they serve. There, at least, I have no doubts, for I serve King Yezdegerd of Turan. And I, the black seers of Yimshah, said Kemza, and my masters are greater than yours, for they have accomplished by their arts what Yezdegard could not with a hundred thousand swords. Outside, the moan of the tortured thousands shuddered up to the stars, which crusted the sweating Vendian night, and the conchs bellowed like oxen in pain. In the gardens of the palace, the torches glinted on polished helmets and curved swords and gold-chased corselets. All the noble-born fighting men of Iota were gathered in the great palace or about it, and at each broad-arched gate and door fifty archers stood on guard with bows in their hands. But death stalked through the royal palace, and none could stay his ghostly tread. On the dais, under the golden dome, the king cried out again, racked by awful paroxysms. Again his voice came faintly and far away, and again the devi bent to him, trembling with a fear that was darker than the terror of death. Yasmina! Again that far, weirdly dreeing cry from realms immeasurable. Aid me! I am far from my mortal house. Wizards have drawn my soul through the wind-blown darkness. They seek to snap the silver cord that binds me to my dying body. They cluster around me. Their hands are taloned. Their eyes are red like flame, burning in darkness. I... Save me, my sister. Their fingers sear me like fire. They would slay my body and damn my soul. What is this they bring before me? Ah... At the terror in his hopeless cry, Yasmina screamed uncontrollably and threw herself bodily upon him in the abandon of her anguish. He was torn by a terrible convulsion. Foam flew from his contorted lips, and his writhing fingers left their marks on the girl's shoulders. But the glassy blankness passed from his eyes like smoke blown from a fire, and he looked up at his sister with recognition. Brother... She sobbed. Brother! Swift! He gasped, and his weakening voice was rational. I know now what brings me to the pyre. I have been on a far journey, and I understand. I have been ensorcelled by the wizards of the Himelians. They drew my soul out of my body and far away, into a stone room. There they strove to break the silver cord of life, and thrust my soul into the body of a foul night-weird their sorcery summoned up from hell. Hully, I feel their pull upon me now. Your cry and the grip of your fingers brought me back, but I am going fast. 
My soul clings to my body, but its hold weakens. Quick, kill me, before they can trap my soul forever. I cannot, she wailed, smiting her naked breasts. Swiftly, I command you. There was the old imperious note in his failing whisper. You have never disobeyed me. Obey my last command. Send my soul clean to Asura. Haste, lest you damn me to spend eternity as a filthy gaunt of darkness. Strike! I command you! Strike! Sobbing wildly, Yasmina plucked a jeweled dagger from her girdle and plunged it to the hilt in his breast. He stiffened and then went limp, a grim smile curving his dead lips. Yasmina hurled herself face down on his rush-covered floor, beating the reeds with her clenched hands. Outside, the gongs and conks brayed and thundered, and the priests gashed themselves with copper knives. Chapter 2 A Barbarian from the Hills Chunder Shan, governor of Peshkori, laid down his golden pen and carefully scanned that which he had written on parchment that bore his official seal. He had ruled Peshkori so long only because he weighed his every word, spoken or written. Danger breeds caution, and only a wary man lives long in that wild country where the hot Vendian plains meet the crags of the Himelians. An hour's ride westward or northward and one crossed the border and was among the hills where men lived by the law of the knife. The governor was alone in his chamber, seated at his ornately carven table of inlaid ebony. Through the wide window, open for the coolness, he could see a square of the blue Himelian night dotted with great white stars. An adjacent parapet was a shadowy line and further crenels and embrasures were barely hinted at in the dim starlight. The governor's fortress was strong, and situated outside the walls of the city it guarded. The breeze that stirred the tapestries on the wall brought faint noises from the streets of Peshkori, occasional snatches of wailing song, or the thrum of a cithern. The governor read what he had written, slowly, with his open hand shading his eyes from the bronze butter lamp, his lips moving. Absently as he read, he heard the drum of horses' hoofs outside the barbican, the sharp staccato of the guard's challenge. He did not heed, intent upon his letter. He was addressed to the Wazam of Vendya, at the royal court of Ayodha, and it stated, after the customary salutations, Let it be known to your excellency that I have faithfully carried out your excellency's instructions. The seven tribesmen are well guarded in their prison, and I have repeatedly sent word into the hills that their chief come in person to bargain for their release. But he has made no move, except to send word that, unless they are freed, he will burn Peshkori and cover his saddle with my hide, begging your excellency's indulgence. This he is quite capable of attempting, and I have tripled the numbers of the lance guards. The man is not a native of Gulistan. 
I cannot with certainty predict his next move, but since it is the wish of the Devi, he was out of his ivory chair and on his feet, facing the arched door, all in one instant. He snatched at the curved sword lying in its ornate scabbard on the table and then checked the movement. It was a woman who had entered unannounced, a woman whose gossamer robes did not conceal the rich garments beneath them any more than they concealed the suppleness and beauty of her tall, slender figure. A filmy veil fell below her breasts, supported by a flowing headdress, bound about with a triple gold braid and adorned with a golden crescent. Her dark eyes regarded the astonished governor over the veil, and then with an imperious gesture of her white hand, she uncovered her face. Devi! The governor dropped to his knees before her, surprise and confusion somewhat spoiling the stateliness of his obeisance. With a gesture, she motioned him to rise, and he hastened to lead her to the ivory chair, all the while bowing level with his girdle. But his first words were of reproof. Your Majesty, this is most unwise. The border is unsettled. Raids from the hills are incessant. You came with a large attendance? An ample retinue followed me to Peshkori, she answered. I lodged my people there, and came on to the fort with my maid, Gitara. Chundershan groaned in horror. Devi, you do not understand the peril. An hour's ride from this spot, the hills swarm with barbarians, who make a profession of murder and rapine. Women have been stolen and men robbed between the fort and the city. Peshkuri is not like your southern provinces. But I am here, and unharmed, she interrupted with a trace of impatience. I showed my signet ring to the guard at the gate and to the one outside your door, and they admitted me unannounced, not knowing me, but supposing me to be a secret courier from Ayodha. Let us not now waste time. You have received no word from the chief of the barbarians? None save threats and curses, Devi. He is wary and suspicious. He deems it a trap, and perhaps he is not to be blamed. The Kshatriyas have not always kept their promises to the hill people. He must be brought to terms, broke in Yasmina, the knuckles of her clenched hands showing white. I do not understand. The governor shook his head. When I chanced to capture these seven hillmen, I reported their capture to the Wazam, as is the custom, and then, before I could hang them, there came an order to hold them and communicate with their chief. This I did, but the man holds aloof, as I have said. These men are of the tribe of Afgulas, but he is a foreigner from the west, and he is called Conan. I have threatened to hang them tomorrow at dawn if he does not come. Good, exclaimed the Devi. You have done well and I will tell you why I have given these orders. My brother, she faltered, choking, and the governor bowed his head, with the customary gesture of respect for a departed sovereign. The king of Vendya was destroyed by magic, she said at last. I have devoted my life to the destruction of his murderers. As he died, he gave me a clue, and I have followed it. I have read the book of Skelos, and talked with nameless hermits in the caves below Yelai. I learned how and by whom 
he was destroyed. His enemies were the black seers of Mount Yimsha. Asura, whispered Chunder Shan, paling. Her eyes knifed him through. Do you fear them? Who does not, your majesty? he replied. They are black devils, haunting the uninhabited hills beyond the Zaibar. But the sages say that they seldom interfere with the lives of mortal men. Why they slew my brother, I do not know, she answered. But I have sworn on the altar of Asura to destroy them, and I need the aid of a man beyond the border. A Kshatriya army, unaided, would never reach Yimsha. Aye, muttered Chundershan. You speak the truth there. It would be fight every step of the way, with hairy hillmen hurling down boulders from every height, and rushing us with their long knives in every valley. The Turanians fought their way through the Himelians once, but how many returned to Kurusan? Few of those who escaped the swords of the Kshatriyas, after the king, your brother, defeated their host on the Jumda River, ever saw Sekundaram again. And so I must control men across the border, she said, men who know the way to Mount Yimsha. But the tribes fear the black seers and shun the unholy mountain, broke in the governor. Does the chief, Conan, fear them? she asked. Well, as to that, muttered the governor, I doubt if there is anything that devil fears. So I have been told. Therefore he is the man I must deal with. He wishes the release of his seven men. Very well. Their ransom shall be the heads of the black seers. Her voice thrummed with hate as she uttered the last words, and her hands clenched at her sides. She looked an image of incarnate passion as she stood there with her head thrown high and her bosom heaving. Again the governor knelt, for part of his wisdom was the knowledge that a woman in such an emotional tempest is as perilous as a blind cobra to any about her. It shall be as you wish, your majesty. Then, as she presented a calmer aspect, he rose and ventured to drop a word of warning. I cannot predict what the chief Conan's action will be. The tribesmen are always turbulent, and I have reason to believe that emissaries from the Turanians are stirring them up to raid our borders. As your majesty knows, the Turanians have established themselves in Secunderam and other northern cities though the hill tribesmen remain unconquered. King Yazdegard has long looked southward with greedy lust, and perhaps is seeking to gain by treachery what he could not win by force of arms. I have thought that Conan might well be one of his spies. We shall see, she answered. If he loves his followers, he will be at the gates at dawn to parley. I shall spend the night in the fortress— I came in disguise to Peshkuri, and lodged my retinue at an inn instead of the palace. Besides my people, only yourself knows of my presence here. I shall escort you to your quarters, your majesty, said the governor, and as they emerged from the doorway, he beckoned the warrior on guard there, and the man fell in behind them, spear held at salute. The maid waited, veiled like her mistress, outside the door, 
and the group traversed a wide, winding corridor, lighted by smoky torches, and reached the quarters reserved for visiting notables, generals and viceroys mostly. None of the royal family had ever honored the fortress before. Chunder Shan had a perturbed feeling that the suite was not suitable to such an exalted personage as the Devi, and though she sought to make him feel at ease in her presence, he was glad when she dismissed him and he bowed himself out. All the menials of the fort had been summoned to serve his royal guest, though he did not divulge her identity, and he stationed a squad of spearmen before her doors, among them the warrior who had guarded his own chamber. In his preoccupation he forgot to replace the man. The governor had not been long gone from her, when Yasmina suddenly remembered something else which she had wished to discuss with him, but had forgotten until that moment. It concerned the past actions of one Kerim Shah, a nobleman from Iranistan, who had dwelt for a while in Peshkuri, before coming on to the court at Ayodha. A vague suspicion concerning the man had been stirred by a glimpse of him in Peshkuri that night. She wondered if he had followed her from Ayodha. Being a truly remarkable Devi, she did not summon the governor to her again, but hurried out into the corridor alone and hastened toward his chamber. Chunder Shan, entering his chamber, closed the door and went to his table. There he took the letter he had been writing and tore it to bits. Scarcely had he finished when he heard something drop softly onto the parapet adjacent to the window. He looked up to see a figure loom briefly against the stars, and then a man dropped lightly into the room. The light glinted on a long sheen of steel in his hand. Shh, he warned. Don't make a noise, or I'll send the devil a henchman. The governor checked his motion toward the sword on the table. He was within reach of the yard-long Zybar knife that glittered in the intruder's fist, and he knew the desperate quickness of a hillman. The invader was a tall man, at once strong and supple. He was dressed like a hillman, but his dark features and blazing blue eyes did not match his garb. Chundershan had never seen a man like him. He was not an Easterner, but some barbarian from the West. But his aspect was as untamed and formidable as any of the hairy tribesmen who haunt the hills of Gulistan. "'You have come like a thief in the night,' commented the governor, recovering some of his composure." although he remembered that there was no guard within call. Still the hillman could not know that. I climbed a bastion, snarled the intruder. A guard thrust his head over the battlement in time for me to wrap it with my knife-hilt. You are Conan? Who else? You sent word into the hills that you wished for me to come and parley with you. Well, by crumb, I've come. Keep away from that table, or I'll gut you. I merely wish to seat myself, answered the governor, carefully sinking into the ivory chair, which he wheeled away from the table. Conan moved restlessly before him, glancing suspiciously at the door, thumbing the razor edge of his three-foot knife. He did not walk like an Afghuli, and was bluntly direct where the east is subtle. You have seven of my men, he said abruptly. You refuse the ransom I offered. What the devil do you want? 
let us discuss terms, answered Chundushan cautiously. Terms? There was a timbre of dangerous anger in his voice. What do you mean? Haven't I offered you gold? Chundushan laughed. Gold? There is more gold in Peshkori than you ever saw. You're a liar, retorted Conan. I've seen the sook of the goldsmiths in Kurusun. Well, more than an Afghuli ever saw, amended Chundushan, and it is but a drop of all the treasure of Ventya. Why should we desire gold? It would be more to our advantage to hang these seven thieves. Conan ripped out a sulphurous oath, and the long blade quivered in his grip as the muscles rose in ridges on his brown arm. I'll split your head like a ripe melon. A wild blue flame flickered in the hillman's eyes, but Chundershan shrugged his shoulders, though keeping an eye on the keen steel. You can kill me easily, and probably escape over the wall afterward, but that would not save the seven tribesmen. My men will surely hang them, and these men are headmen among the Afghulis. I know it, snarled Conan, the tribe is baying like wolves at my heels because I have not procured their release. Tell me in plain words what you want, because by Krom, if there is no other way, I'll raise a horde and lead it to the very gates of Peshkuri. Looking at the man as he stood squarely, knife in fist and eyes glaring, Chundershan did not doubt that he was capable of it. The governor did not believe any hill horde could take Peshkuri but he did not wish a devastated countryside. There is a mission you must perform, he said, choosing his words with as much care as if they had been razors. There, Conan had sprung back, wheeling to face the door at the same instant, lips a snarl. His barbarian ears had caught the quick tread of soft slippers outside the door. The next instant, the door was thrown open, and a slim, silk-robed form entered hastily, pulling the door shut, then stopping short at sight of the hillman. Chundershan sprang up, his heart jumping into his mouth. Devi! he cried involuntarily, losing his head momentarily in his fright. Devi! It was like an explosive echo from the hillman's lips. Chundershan saw recognition and intent flame up in the fierce blue eyes. The governor shouted desperately, and caught at his sword, but the hillman moved with the devastating speed of a hurricane. He sprang, knocked the governor sprawling with a savage blow of his knife-hilt, swept up the astounded Devi in one brawny arm, and leaped for the window. Chundershan, struggling frantically to his feet, saw the man poise an instant on the sill in a flutter of silken skirts and white limbs that was his royal captive, and heard his fierce, exultant snarl, "'Now dare to hang my men!' and then Conan leaped to the parapet and was gone. A wild scream floated back to the governor's ears. Guard! Guard! screamed the governor, struggling up and running drunkenly to the door. He tore it open and reeled into the hall. His shouts re-echoed along the corridors, and warriors came running, gaping to see the governor holding his broken head, from which the blood streamed. Turn out the lancers! he roared. There has been an abduction! Even in his frenzy, he had enough sense left to withhold the full truth. He stopped short as he heard a sudden drum of hoofs outside, a frantic scream, and a wild yell of barbaric exultation. Followed by the bewildered guardsman, 
the governor raced for the stair. In the courtyard of the fort, a force of lancers stood by saddled steeds, ready to ride at an instant's notice. Chunder Shan led his squadron, flying after the fugitive, though his head swam, so he had to hold with both hands to the saddle. He did not divulge the identity of the victim, but said merely that the noble woman who had borne the royal signet ring had been carried away by the chief of the Afghulis. The abductor was out of sight and hearing, but they knew the path he would strike the road that runs straight to the mouth of the Zaibar. There was no moon. Peasant huts rose dimly in the starlight. Behind them fell away the grim bastion of the fort and the towers of the Peshkori. Ahead of them loomed the black walls of the Himelians. Chapter 3 Kemza Uses Magic In the confusion that reigned in the fortress while the guard was being turned out, no one noticed that the girl who had accompanied the Devi slipped out the great arched gate and vanished in the darkness. She ran straight for the city, her garments tucked high. She did not follow the open road, but cut straight through fields and over slopes, avoiding fences and leaping irrigation ditches, as surely as if it were broad daylight, and as easily as if she were a trained, masculine runner. The hoof-drum of the guardsman had faded away up the hill before she reached the city wall. She did not go to the great gate, beneath whose arch men leaned on spears and craned their necks into the darkness, discussing the unwanted activity about the fortress. She skirted the wall until she reached a certain point where the spire of the tower was visible above the battlements. Then she placed her hands to her mouth and voiced a low, weird call that carried strangely. Almost instantly, a head appeared at an embrasure, and a rope came wriggling down the wall. She seized it, placed a foot in the loop at the end, and waved her arm. Then, quickly and smoothly, she was drawn up the sheer stone curtain. An instant later, she scrambled over the merlins and stood up on a flat roof which covered a house that was built against the wall. There was an open trap there, and a man in a camel-hair robe, who silently coiled the rope, not showing in any way the strain of hauling a full-grown woman up a forty-foot wall. "'Where is Karim Shah?' she gasped, panting after her long run. "'Asleep in the house below. You have news?' Conan has stolen the Devi out of the fortress and carried her away into the hills. She blurted out her news in a rush, the words stumbling over one another. Kemsa showed no emotion, but merely nodded his turbaned head. Kerem Shah will be glad to hear that, he said. Wait! The girl threw her supple arms around his neck. She was panting hard, not only from exertion. Her eyes blazed like black jewels in the starlight. Her upturned face was close to Kemsa's, but though he submitted to her embrace, he did not return it. Do not tell the Hyrcanian, she panted. Let us use this knowledge ourselves. The governor has gone into the hills with his riders, but he might as well chase a ghost. He has not told anyone that it was the Devi who was kidnapped. None in Peshkuri or the fort knows it except us. But what good does it do us? The man expostulated. My master sent me with Kerem Shah to aid him in every way. Aid yourself! She cried fiercely, 
shake off your yoke. You mean disobey my masters? He gasped, and she felt his whole body turn cold under her arms. I! She shook him with the fury of her emotion. You, too, are a magician. Why will you be a slave, using your powers only to elevate others? Use your arts for yourself. That is forbidden. He was shaking as if with an ague. I am not one of the black circle. Only by the command of the masters do I dare to use the knowledge they have taught me. But you can use it, she argued passionately. Do as I beg you. Of course Conan has taken the Devi to hold as hostage against the seven tribesmen in the governor's prison. Destroy them, so Chunder Shan cannot use them to buy back the Devi. Then let us go into the mountains and take her from the Afghulis. They cannot stand against your sorcery with their knives. The treasury of the Vendian kings will be ours as ransom. And then, when we have it in our hands, we can trick them and sell her to the king of Turin. We shall have wealth beyond our maddest dreams. With it, we can buy warriors. We will take Corbel, oust the Turanians from the hills, and send our hosts southward, become king and queen of an empire. Kemsa, too, was panting, shaking like a leaf in her grasp. His face showed grey in the starlight, beaded with great drops of perspiration. I love you she cried fiercely, writhing her body against his, almost strangling him in her wild embrace, shaking him in her abandon. I will make a king of you. For love of you, I betrayed my mistress. For love of me, betray your masters. Why fear the black seers? By your love for me, you have broken one of their laws already. Break the rest. You are as strong as they. A man of ice, could not have withstood the searing heat of her passion and fury. With an inarticulate cry, he crushed her to him, bending her backward and showering gasping kisses on her eyes, face, and lips. I'll do it. His voice was thick with laboring emotions. He staggered like a drunken man. The arts they have taught me shall work for me, not my master's. We shall be rulers of the world, of the world. Come then, twisting lithely out of his embrace, she seized his hand and led him toward the trap-door. First, we must make sure that the governor does not exchange those seven Afghulis for the Devi. He moved like a man in a daze, until they had descended a ladder, and she paused in the chamber below. Kerim Shah lay on a couch, motionless, an arm across his face, as though to shield his sleeping eyes from the soft light of a brass lamp. She plucked Kemza's arm and made a quick gesture across her own throat. Kemza lifted his hand. Then his expression changed, and he drew away. I have eaten his salt, he muttered. Besides, he cannot interfere with us. He led the girl through a door that opened on a winding stair. After their soft tread had faded into silence, the man on the couch sat up. Kerim Shah wiped the sweat from his face. A knife thrust he did not dread, but he feared Kemza as a man fears a poisonous reptile. P.
people who plot on roofs should remember to lower their voices, he muttered. But as Kemsa has turned against his masters, and as he was my only contact between them, I can count on their aid no longer. From now on, I play the game in my own way. Rising to his feet, he went quickly to a table, drew pen and parchment from his girdle, and scribbled a few succinct lines. To Koshru Khan, governor of Secundaram, the Cimmerian Conan has carried the Devi Yasmina to the villages of the Afghulis. It is an opportunity to get the Devi into our hands, as the Long has so long desired. Send three thousand horsemen at once. I will meet them in the valley of Gurasha with native guides. And he signed it with a name that was not in the least like Kerim Shah. Then, from a golden cage, he drew forth a carrier pigeon, to whose leg he made fast the parchment, rolled into a tiny cylinder and secured with gold wire. Then he went quickly to a casement and tossed the bird into the night. It wavered on fluttering wings, balanced, and was gone like a flitting shadow. Catching up helmet, sword, and cloak, Kerem Shah hurried out of the chamber and down the winding stair. The prison quarters of Peshkuri were separated from the rest of the city by a massive wall, in which was set a single iron-bound door under an arch. Over the arch burned a lurid red cresset, and beside the door squatted a warrior with spear and shield. This warrior, leaning on his spear and yawning from time to time, started suddenly to his feet. He had not thought he had dozed, but a man was standing before him, a man he had not heard approach. The man wore a camel-hair robe and a green turban. In the flickering light of the cresset, his features were shadowy, but a pair of lambent eyes shone surprisingly in the lurid glow. "'Who comes?' demanded the warrior, presenting his spear. "'Who are you?' The stranger did not seem perturbed, though the spear-point touched his bosom. His eyes held the warrior's with strange intensity. "'What are you obliged to do?' he asked strangely. "'To guard the gate!' The warrior spoke thickly and mechanically. He stood rigid as a statue, his eyes slowly glazing. "'You lie. You are obliged to obey me. You have looked into my eyes, and your soul is no longer your own. Open the door.' Stiffly, with the wooden features of an image, the guard wheeled about, drew a great key from his girdle, turned it in the massive lock, and swung open the door. Then he stood at attention, his unseeing stare straight ahead of him. A woman glided from the shadows and laid an eager hand on the mesmerist's arm. "'Bid him fetch us horses, Kemsa,' she whispered. "'No need of that,' answered the Raksha. Lifting his voice slightly, he spoke to the guardsman. "'I have no more use for you. Kill yourself.' Like a man in a trance, the warrior thrust the butt of his spear against the base of the wall and placed the keen head against his body, just below the ribs. Then, slowly, stolidly, he leaned against it with all his weight so that it transfixed his body and came out between his shoulders. Sliding down the shaft, he lay still, the spear jutting above him its full length, like a horrible stalk, 
growing out of his back. The girl stared down at him in morbid fascination, until Kemsa took her arm and led her through the gate. Torches lighted a narrow space between the outer wall and a lower inner one, in which were arched doors at regular intervals. A warrior paced this enclosure, and when the gate opened, he came sauntering up, so secure in his knowledge of the prison's strength that he was not suspicious until Kemza and the girl emerged from the archway. Then it was too late. The Raksha did not waste time in hypnotism, though his actions savored of magic to the girl. The guard lowered his spear threateningly, opening his mouth to shout an alarm that would bring spearmen swarming out of their guard rooms at either end of the alleyway. Kemza flicked the spear aside with his left hand, as a man might flick a straw, and his right flashed out and back, seeming gently to caress the warrior's neck in passing. And the guard pitched on his face without a sound, his head lolling on a broken neck. Kemza did not glance at him, but went straight to one of the arched doors and placed his open hand against the heavy bronze lock. With a rending shudder, the portal buckled inward. As the girl followed him through, she saw that the thick teak wood hung in splinters, the bronze bolts were bent and twisted from their sockets, and the great hinges were broken and disjointed. A thousand-pound battering ram with forty men to swing it could have shattered the barrier no more completely. Kemsa was drunk with freedom and the exercise of his power, glorying in his might and flinging his strength about as a young giant exercises his thews with unnecessary vigor and the exultant pride of his prowess. The broken door let them into a small courtyard, lit by a cresset. Opposite the door was a wide grill of iron bars. A hairy hand was visible, gripping one of these bars, and in the darkness behind them glimmered the whites of eyes. Kemsa stood silent for a space gazing into the shadows from which those glimmering eyes gave back his stare with burning intensity. Then his hand went into his robe and came out again, and from his opening fingers a shimmering feather of sparkling dust sifted to the flags. Instantly, a flare of green fire lighted the enclosure. In the brief glare, the forms of seven men, standing motionless behind the bars, were limbed in vivid detail tall, hairy men in ragged hillmen's garments. They did not speak, but in their eyes blazed the fear of death, and their hairy fingers gripped the bars. The fire died out, but the glow remained, a quivering ball of lambent green that pulsed and shimmered on the flags before Kemsa's feet. The wide gaze of the tribesmen was fixed upon it. It wavered, elongated, it turned into a luminous green smoke, spiraling upward. It twisted and writhed like a great shadowy serpent, then broadened and billowed out in shining folds and whirls. It grew to a cloud moving silently over the flags, straight toward the grill. The men watched its coming with dilated eyes. The bars quivered with the grip of their desperate fingers. Bearded lips parted, but no sound came forth. The green cloud rolled on the bars and blotted them from sight. Like a fog, it oozed through the grill and hid the men within. From the enveloping folds came a strangled gasp, 
as of a man plunged suddenly under the surface of water. That was all. Kemsa touched the girl's arm as she stood with parted lips and dilated eyes. Mechanically, she turned away with him, looking back over her shoulder. Already the mist was thinning. Close to the bars, she saw a pair of sandaled feet, the toes turned upward. She glimpsed the indistinct outlines of seven still prostrate shapes. And now for a steed swifter than the fastest horse ever bred in a mortal stable, Kemza was saying, we will be in Afghulistan before dawn. Chapter 4 An Encounter in the Pass Yasmina Devi could never clearly remember the details of her abduction. The unexpectedness and violence stunned her. She had only a confused impression of a whirl of happenings, the terrifying grip of a mighty arm, the blazing eyes of her abductor, and his hot breath burning on her flesh. The leap through the window to the parapet, the mad race across battlements and roofs when the fear of falling froze her, the reckless descent of a rope bound to a merlin, he went down almost at a run, his captive folded limply over his brawny shoulder. All this was a befuddled tangle in the devil's mind. She retained a more vivid memory of him running fleetly into the shadows of the trees, carrying her like a child, and vaulting into the saddle of a fierce Balkana stallion which reared and snorted. Then there was a sensation of flying, and the racing hoofs were striking sparks of fire from the flinty road as the stallion swept up the slopes. As the girl's mind cleared, her first sensations were furious rage and shame. She was appalled. The rulers of the Golden Kingdoms south of the Himelians were considered little short of divine, and she was the Devi of Vendia. Fright was submerged in regal wrath. She cried out furiously and began struggling, she, Yasmina, to be carried on the saddle-bow of a hill-chief, like a common wench of the marketplace. He merely hardened his massive thews slightly against her writhings, and for the first time in her life she experienced the coercion of superior physical strength. His arms felt like iron against her slender limbs. He glanced down at her and grinned hugely. His teeth glimmered whitely in the starlight. The reins lay loose on the stallion's flowing mane, and every thew and fiber of the great beast strained as he hurtled along the boulder-strewn trail. But Conan sat easily, almost carelessly in the saddle, riding like a centaur. You hill-bred dog, she panted, quivering with the impact of shame, anger, and the realization of helplessness. You dare, you dare, your life shall pay for this. Where are you taking me? To the villages of Afghulistan, he answered, casting a glance over his shoulder. Behind them, beyond the slopes they had traversed, torches were tossing on the walls of the fortress, and he glimpsed a flare of light that meant the great gate had been opened, and he laughed, a deep-throated boom gusty as the hill wind. The governor has sent his riders after us, <laughs> he laughed. By Crom, we will lead him a merry chase. What do you think, Devi? Will they pay seven lives for a Kshatriya princess? 
They will send an army to hang you and your spawn of devils, she promised him with conviction. He laughed gustily and shifted her to a more comfortable position in his arms. But she took this as a fresh outrage and renewed her vain struggle until she saw that her efforts were only amusing him. Besides, her light silken garments, floating on the wind, were being outrageously disarranged by her struggles. She concluded that a scornful submission was the better part of dignity, and lapsed into a smoldering quiescence. She felt even her anger being submerged by awe as they entered the mouth of the pass, lowering like a black well-mouth in the blacker walls that rose like colossal ramparts to bar their way. It was as if a gigantic knife had cut the Zybar out of walls of solid rock. On either hand, sheer slopes pitched up for thousands of feet, and the mouth of the pass was dark as hate. Even Conan could not see with any accuracy, but he knew the road, even by night. And knowing that armed men were racing through the starlight after him, he did not check the stallion's speed. The great brute was not yet showing fatigue. He thundered along the road that followed the valley bed, labored up a slope, swept along a low ridge where treacherous shale on either hand lurked for the unwary, and came upon a trail that followed the lap of the left-hand wall. Not even Conan could spy in that darkness an ambush set by Zybar tribesmen. As they swept past the black mouth of a gorge that opened into the pass, a javelin swished through the air and thudded home behind the stallion's straining shoulder. The great beast let out his life in a shuddering sob and stumbled, going headlong in mid-stride. But Conan had recognized the flight and stroke of the javelin, and he acted with spring-steel quickness. As the horse fell, he leaped clear, holding the girl aloft to guard her from striking boulders. He lit on his feet like a cat, thrust her into a cleft of rock, and wheeled toward the outer darkness, drawing his knife. Yasmina, confused by the rapidity of events, not quite sure just what had happened, saw a vague shape rush out of the darkness, bare feet slapping softly on the rock, ragged garments whipping out of his haste. She glimpsed the flicker of steel, heard the lightning crack of stroke, parry and counterstroke, and the crunch of bone as Conan's long knife split the other's skull. Conan sprang back, crouching in the shelter of the rocks. Out in the night, men were moving, and a stentorian voice roared, "'What, you dogs? Do you flinch? In curse you, and take them!' Conan started, peered into the darkness, and lifted his voice. "'Yar Afsal, is that you?' There sounded a startled imprecation, and the voice called warily. "'Conan? Is it you, Conan?' "'Aye!' The Cimmerian laughed. Come forth, you old war dog. I've slain one of your men. There was a movement among the rocks. A light flared dimly, and then a flame appeared and came bobbing toward him. And as it approached, a fierce bearded countenance grew out of the darkness. The man who carried it held it high, thrust forward, and craned his neck to peer among the boulders it lighted. The other hand gripped a great curved tulwar. Conan stepped forward, sheathing his knife, and the other roared a greeting. Aye, it is Conan! Come out of your rocks, dogs! It is Conan! Others pressed into the wavering circle of light. Wild, ragged, bearded men, 
with eyes like wolves and long blades in their fists. They did not see Yasmina, for she was hidden by Conan's massive body. But peeping from her covert, she knew icy fear for the first time that night. These men were more like wolves than human beings. What are you hunting in the Zybar by night, Yarafsal? Conan demanded of the burly chief, who grinned like a bearded ghoul. Who knows what might come up the pass after dark? We Wazulis are nighthawks. But what of you, Conan? I have a prisoner, answered the Sumerian. And moving aside, he disclosed the cowering girl. Reaching a long arm into the crevice, he drew her trembling forth. Her imperious bearing was gone. She stared timidly at the ring of bearded faces that hemmed her in, and was grateful for the strong arm that clasped her possessively. The torch was thrust close to her, and there was a sucking intake of breath about the ring. She is my captive, Conan warned, glancing pointedly at the feet of the man he had slain, just visible within the ring of light. I was taking her to Afghulistan, but now you have slain my horse, and the Kshatriyas are close behind me. Come with us to my village, suggested Yar Afsal. We have horses hidden in the gorge. They can never follow us in the darkness. They are close behind you, you say? So close that I hear now the clink of their hoofs on the flint, answered Conan grimly. Instantly there was movement. The torch was dashed out, and the ragged shapes melted like phantoms into the darkness. Conan swept up the devi in his arms, and she did not resist. The rocky ground hurt her slim feet in her soft slippers, and she felt very small and helpless in that brutish, primordial blackness among these colossal, nighted crags. Feeling her shiver in the wind that moaned down the defiles, Conan jerked a ragged cloak from his owner's shoulders and wrapped it about her. He also hissed a warning in her ear, ordering her to make no sound. She did not hear the distant clink of shod hoofs on rock that warned the keen-eared hillman, but she was too far frightened to disobey in any event. She could see nothing but a few faint stars above, but she knew by the deepening darkness when they entered the gorge mouth. There was a stir about them, the uneasy movement of horses, a few muttered words, and Conan mounted the horse of the man he had killed, lifting the girl up in front of him. Like phantoms except for the click of their hoofs, the band swept away up the shadowy gorge. Behind them on the trail, they left the dead horse and the dead man, which were found less than half an hour later by the riders from the fortress, who recognized the man as a Wazuli and drew their own conclusions accordingly. Yasmina, snuggled warmly in her captor's arms, grew drowsy in spite of herself. The motion of the horse, though it was uneven, uphill and down, yet possessed a certain rhythm which combined with weariness and emotional exhaustion to force sleep upon her. She had lost all sense of time or direction. They moved in soft, thick darkness, in which she sometimes glimpsed vaguely gigantic walls sweeping up like black ramparts, or great crags shouldering the stars. At times, she sensed echoing depths beneath them, or felt the wind of dizzy heights blowing cold about her. Gradually, these things faded into a dreamy unwakefulness, in which the clink of hoofs and the creak of saddles were like the irrelevant sounds in a dream. 
She was vaguely aware when the motion ceased, and she was lifted down and carried a few steps. Then she was laid down on something soft and rustling, and something, a folded coat perhaps, was thrust under her head, and the cloak in which she was wrapped was carefully tucked about her. She heard Yarafsal laugh. A rare prize, Conan, a fit mate for a chief of the Afghulis. Not for me, came Conan's answering rumble. This wench will buy the lives of my seven headmen, blast their souls. That was the last she heard, as she sank into dreamless slumber. She slept, while armed men rode through the dark hills, and the fate of kingdoms hung in the balance. Through the shadowy gorges and defiles that night, there rang the hoofs of galloping horses, and the starlight glimmered on helmets and curved blades, until the ghoulish shapes that haunt the crags stared into the darkness from ravine and boulder, and wondered what things were afoot. A band of these sat, gaunt horses in the black pit mouth of a gorge, as the hurrying hoofs swept past. Their leader, a well-built man in a helmet and gilt-braided cloak, held up his hand warningly until the riders had sped on. Then he laughed softly. They must have lost the trail, or else they have found that Conan has already reached the Afghuli villages. It will take many riders to smoke out that hive. There will be squadrons riding up the Zybar by dawn. If there is fighting in the hills, there will be looting, muttered a voice behind him in the dialect of the Yeroxai. There will be looting, answered the man with the helmet. But first, it is our business to reach the valley of Gurasha and await the riders that will be galloping southward from Secunderam before daylight. He lifted his reins and rode out of the defile, his men falling in behind him, thirty ragged phantoms in the starlight. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this production of The People of the Black Circle, Part 1 of 4, by Robert E. Howard. If you have enjoyed this book, please become a supporting member of the Classic Tales at ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com. You'll find many ways of supporting us, starting at only $5 a month. Each donation comes with a monthly thank you code for expanding your classic audiobook library. You can also rate and review us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcast. Every little bit helps. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. (laughs) 